This is Salt and Spine. For me, this book, it was always about how proud I am about my food, my country. So I, I really wanted to do it the best I could. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from one of today's guests, Pilar Hernandez. Pilar is the author of The Chilean Kitchen, the cookbook that she authored with journalist Eileen Smith. Building on the recipes Pilar has shared on her popular food blog, Chilean Food and Garden, their cookbook covers 75 of Pilar's family recipes alongside perspectives from Eileen on Chilean food and culture. Now, Chilean food has been changing over the last few decades with the influence of new immigrants, an improved agricultural infrastructure, and the transition to democracy in the 90s, which ushered in a more robust restaurant culture. But here in the Chilean kitchen, we'll find home-cooked dishes that Pilar grew up with and still cooks today, organized by season, from caramelized onion empanadas to pickled chicken thighs to dulce de leche thousand-layer cake. Pilar and Eileen joined us remotely for this week's episode, and stick around. Uh, We're closing today's show with a culinary game, of course. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where the Chilean Kitchen authors Pilar Hernandez and Eileen Smith joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Pilar. Hi, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi, Brian. Hello. We're so happy to have both of you um, to talk about your cookbook, The Chilean Kitchen, which is beautiful, and the photography is stunning. The whole book is just wonderful. I spent a lot of time with it this weekend. Can't wait to talk about it, but I want to talk to both of you first about your careers and how you sort of came to food and to ultimately writing this cookbook. Um, So Pilar, maybe we'll start with you. You were born in Chile, is that right? And grew up there? Yes. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what sorts of foods, uh, food memories you have from your time in Chile? So I was born in a small town. It's like it was a hundred thousand people around and it's very close to Santiago, the capital, where five millions live. So we always have the choice to go there if we needed anything. But I grew up in this small country that is mainly devoted to minery and to agriculture. So in my family, we were very used to go to the countryside. We live in a city, but really our connection with the countryside was like in 20 minutes you were in where they were growing stuff on the farms. Uh-huh. So I, I grew up very much in connection with uh, where our food came from. And I grew up in my mother's family and they were all like very into food for forever. So all our celebrations were around food, our vacations were around food, and many of our friends were around food. Sure. So it was very, very, I, I, I didn't appreciate it when I was growing up, but it really was so fundamental like now that we were doing the book that to have all these memories and all these uh, hidden treasures in my mind. So it was a very nice way of growing up. And I grew up in, this, this is all in the central part of our country in Chile. Mm-hmm. And so that's the food that is mainly highlighted in the in the book because it's what uh, I'm more familiar with it. And you also, I read, your grandparents lived on the coast and you also spent some time there, right? Was that sort of a different culinary experience for you then to go to their house? Yeah, so they they have a house on the coast. So they live in this in the same city that I grew up, but uh, they have a house that actually it was built when I was growing up. So the first time I went to that to that town, that it was really it was like we didn't have uh, water or electricity when we arrived there. So my grandfather was very adventurous, and he always had this dream of building his own house. And he bought this this land. And so we were all with, it was like a 10 10 houses place. So it was super small. And we were like thrown into the the normal living of that place that it was all around fishing and uh, and just farming. So it was amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. You... Trained then as a physician, is that right? As a doctor? 
So yeah. you weren't pursuing a career in food um, and that you were trained to be a doctor in Chile. Is that right? Before you moved to the States? Yes. So uh, my mother, she's, she was a single mom. So she was very like committed for me to have an education and to be independent and be safe and all that. So from all my early childhood, I was very a bookish kid. And so, yeah, when I finished high school, I went to medical school. And I was that that was what I was going to do. I was never in love with medicine. So <laughs> in a sense, I'm like happy that how things turn out. But really, it, it was not an option. So it was like or, or medicine or lawyer or engineer, you know, the classic... <laughs> for parents to, sure. to hope so, for. So yes, I am a general practitioner and I did a master in child psychology too. So okay. that that's my background. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of time studying for those degrees. And then you moved to the United States, but I want to talk about that at the same time we talk about Eileen, you moving to Chile, because they happened around the same time. But I want to bring you and Eileen to talk about your life a little bit. So you're originally from New York, yes? Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, very typical Ashkenazi Jewish family. So like not a lot of, not a big extended family, but a lot of influence um, from that food. My father actually was super interested in food from other places. And I would say he was just, he was a procurer. Like he would go out and he would procure things that I had never seen before, whether they were you know, what now I call long beans, but at the time we just called like the really long string beans or uh-huh. lotus flowers or or just whatever he could find that was different and new. He was super into it, really interested. And we had a garden in our backyard. Um, it was a bit of like, I said it was kind of typical, but in a way it was a bit iconoclastic. So we were doing things that maybe the neighbors would have thought were a little bit crazy. I mean, he made his own yogurt and, you know, all these things that are really popular now. Um, he was really sure. into that. And kind of gave us, I don't know if he gave us all a little spark, but me, (laughs) a spark for that. (laughs) So you took an interest in food early on, but it wasn't a a professional interest, right? Because you you then ultimately went to law school. Right. So that's kind of like the hidden joke of the book is that um, (laughs) like a Chilena and a gringa got together in opposite countries, each trained in this like, I don't know, highly esteemed academic pursuit. And then we write a cookbook together. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So no, I wasn't, I saw, so I've been a writer for quite a while and I write about, I mean, I write about lots of different things, but at times I've written a lot about food and that's actually how Pilar and I met was through me writing about food. It's been something that's really interesting to me. You know, obviously this moves into moving to Chile, but um, moving to Chile, I was confronted with a lot of foods that I didn't know. And I was really interested in what made people love them and what made things so important to people, like foods that to me didn't have a deep emotional significance, I could tell really meant something to people. Yeah. And you're so you were working as a journalist, and you interviewed Pilar, right, for an article you were writing. And that's how you sort of first connected the two of you? Well, it's how we first spoke, but we each knew about the other one, because we each, um, I actually relied on Pilar's, a lot of Pilar's recipes, um, when I was working for different different magazines and websites to sort of see like, well, I know this food from a very external perspective. What does someone who knows this food from the inside say about this food? And so you moved to Chile mid 2000s, which is around the same time, Pilar, you left Chile and moved to the United States, right? And I think it's interesting that that timing sort of aligned because I think without putting words into either of your mouths, it it seems like Eileen, you took a, a greater interest in Chilean food hence because you had now lived there. Um, and Pilar, you sort of started to appreciate maybe the Chilean food that you had left behind and were, were now cooking um, as you were able to in the States. Is that right? Can you talk about what that move meant for each of you? Sure. So, yeah, for me, it was totally like I was spoiled. Like my mom, my grandma, my aunts were all like great cooks. So I was like, I, even during medical school, sometimes I have it. Oh, I want to eat this. I will just call my aunt and show up for lunch. And there it was. So <laughs> yeah. I I was like, so spoiled. But then we moved here with my husband. And here in Houston, uh, we have always this 
these 17 year, past years we have lived here in Houston, there is a very small Chilean community. There, there is no Chilean restaurant. So it was at the beginning for the first one or two years, we were like, oh my God, there is so much good food. My husband is very into food too. So we were like, we have never had Thai food, Vietnamese food, like the Chinese food was totally different. So the first uh-huh. one or one or two years, we were like, oh, my God, we need to try all this. But then after a while, like, we were like, oh, but, you know, I do miss uh, turkey can, like, or comfort food. At the end of the day, it was Chilean food. So then I started calling home and, like, mom, please <laughs> let me tell me how to cook because I never learned. I never learned in Chile. I have all these fa- flavors that I could recognize and the smells and the pictures and the cravings, but I didn't know how to cook. So I learned to cook Chilean food here in the U- United States. Yeah. And Eileen, I, the move for you, what did that mean? Um, I think it was a bit more circuitous for me. I first you know, I went, you go through waves of cultural adaptation. Um, Unlike moving to the United States, you really have no idea what you're getting into when you move to Chile, because you've never seen it in a movie or on TV. Like, so everything was really, really new and also very strange, because I had lived in a, I'd lived in Washington, DC for a number of years in a heavily Spanish speaking neighborhood. And so then it sort of seemed like I should know what was going on, but I was still confused. And so there was a little um, just cultural adaptation time. And I think at the beginning, I was looking for how to make my food, the food that I considered to be mine out of Chilean ingredients. And then that became kind of a a fun show for when friends would come over, I'd be like, I bet you don't know what this is. And I would make cornbread, which is not something that we eat in Chile, but we have the ingredients, right? But that ingredient, chuchoca, is normally used to thicken soup. So I'd be like, you don't know what this is. And we'd be like, they'd be like, "We, we, we don't. But over time, it became less of a show and more of just a genuine interest of, again, why, like, Chile has some really just dyed in the wool traditions. The one we always talk about is that on rainy days, people eat sopaipias pasadas, which are these fried squash flavored, I guess, discs of dough uh-huh. with a, a specific syrup. And like, you know, people would talk about them, but then people would come back when I worked in an office, people would come back with boxes of them and be like, oh, I got so big BS. And like the whole office would go, ooh, that's so amazing. And I was like, okay, I have like, I need, I'm living on the surface here. I got to figure out what's going on. Like what is, what is so exciting about the food and the stories and the way it makes people feel? Because in the end, that's what I'm really interested in is what makes people tick. Sure. So the book then, the cookbook, The Chilean Kitchen, Pilar, I think you were the one who sort of initially thought, like, I want to do a cookbook, right? And then reached out to Eileen. Can you tell us how the book sort of came to be? Yes. So I was working on a cookbook uh, for the Chilean market. So I already have two cookbooks there. And it was a great experience. I did it with other people, with three other food bloggers, and we have so much fun. I went to Chile. We did all the pictures with the same photographer that we hired for the Chilean kitchen. And I was working in another project with them. And then uh, the Muslim ban happened. And I decided not to travel because I didn't have my citizenship yet. I have a green card at that time. And I was too scared to go. So I ended up having all this time. And I was like, maybe maybe I need to focus in the United States now. Then this needs to be my family is here. My kids grow, are growing up here. Should, I should pursue, like, be more established here. My, my blog initially was in Spanish, and then I, I made it bilingual. But I have never really devoted much time to work in in English. So I, I was like, maybe it's time. And I I thought, okay, so let's do a cookbook here. And but from the beginning I knew I didn't wanted to do it alone because having the experience of doing a book a cookbook before, I knew it was a very long process. And I like having someone who's in the project that you can bounce questions that or you can support each other. Because even if your family are supporter, supportive, and my family is, they don't understand the, you know, the little things. So I thought, okay, 
So I need to figure out who will want to jump into this crazy idea. <laughs> and really, the first person I thought it was Eileen. I, I knew I wanted someone who was an uh, English native speaker. And I, I prefer an American person and uh, someone born in the United States because I, I do value that you know, even myself that I have been living here for so long, I, I recognize that I don't have all the really in-depth knowledge of the language. So I wanted someone who could really highlight what we feel about our food. And and because for me, this book, it was always about how proud I, I am about my food, my country. So I, I really wanted to do it the best I could. So... Yeah. Yeah, and, and I thought about, about Eileen and I sent an email and I was like, this is going to sound crazy, but I have this idea. Do you want to jump into a call? And she was excited from the beginning. And that was awesome because, you know, uh, I think that was really important because then the whole process is so long, like writing the proposal, the agent selling the book and everything. So the, the fact that we both were very excited about it make it everything so much easier. Yeah, one of the things I love about your process, and, and you can jump in on this, Eileen, too, is um, that you actually never met each other in person, right, until you came together to test the recipes. You did the, you basically built this cookbook without ever having met each other face to face. Until Pilar's husband said, Eileen? At the airport in Houston after an overnight flight from Santiago, I had never met anyone that knew Pilar at all. <laughs> wow. What was yeah, the process but... like to build the book virtually, you know, from different countries and without having the long-standing, you know, personal relationship? I, I think I have to adjust something a little bit beforehand, okay. which is to say I realized early on in my writing career. So we talk a lot in, I write a lot of, or I used to write a lot of travel and we talk a lot about parachute journalism in travel, but in everything really where someone who doesn't know anything comes in from outside and writes the story. And it was really important to me early on. I realized I've interviewed a lot of people that I consider to be really iconic and, and really like important to the canon of what they do, whether that's wine or food or something else. And it's really important to me to, to help construct that platform, but to not necessarily have to be the main character in the story. And so one of the reasons that this book really appealed to me was because it gave me the opportunity to kind of do service in that way, to make it so that a Chilean gets to tell the Chilean story of the Chilean food. This is not an American telling you about Chilean food. Now, the words are mine, but we had hundreds of hours of conversations on the phone and in writing, and I don't even know where else. And, and I would write a text, I feel I would say yes or no, or kind of like this, but not really, or oh, no, please, no. You know, we were always very transparent, but it was really important to me to not do that thing that I think does a disservice to people when you write about them as opposed to with them. Yeah. And something, frankly, that happens so much in the cookbook and food media worlds in particular. Well, we just think our timing is impeccable for writing a cookbook in exactly this way, which is that yeah. it's Pilar's book that I helped write. So what did that practically look like? I mean, were you, were you Skyping often? Were you cooking virtually with each other? What did it look like to build a cookbook in this way? So the way we, we are both very organized. And, and that was another thing that it was great from the beginning. So we will just split up the, whatever we were about to do, like, because we first started writing the proposals. So when we got to write the book, we were very like used and have our ways of doing things. And we were just split the work. And then like once a week, we will have like two, three hours of conversation on, on the phone and, and we will go over what either Eileen have written and, and then I have check and go bouncing around and then, okay, this is what we're doing next week. And it really worked out. And then when we go together, got together, so our photographer at Aceli Pass, she's also from Chile. And I know her very well because we have worked together before. So, and then we came here to my house and we cooked the all the recipes. And that was a great thing because we were so immersed and my family left the house. So <laughs> the whole house was just devoted 
and and focus on the book and uh-huh. we were hanging the pictures on the on the stairwell and looking at them and talking about our memories and Araceli also could contribute with their her stories and he, she is I'm from south of Santiago the capital and she's from north of Santiago so sometimes we could even like compare that a little difference that the, there is in a country. And it was very important for how the book came to be in the end, that we yeah. have that 10 days that we really immerse of ourselves. Cookbook camp, we like to call it. We want to cookbook <laughs> yeah. Camp. When we were Sounds writing... Sounds like a fun time. Yes, it was really fun, really intense. When we were writing, um, when we were first talking about the cookbook, Pilar explained what she had in mind. And then I think because my, I would say like my comfort zone is writing essays. I was like, well, what if each one goes with just not just a description of what the food is? What if it goes with an essay? And what if sometimes it's historical, or sometimes it's linguistic, or sometimes it's memory based, or sometimes it's cultural? Like, what if we do that? So like, where we talk about where we first start talking about wheat, we talk about, you know, where wheat is important and how it becomes important. And like, there's a festival that has to do with the wheat threshing. And then comparing things to, to how they are in the United States. Like, for example, there's a a honeydew, a wine sipped out of a honeydew shell. And that um, I compare it to a jack-o'-lantern because the way you cut off the top is kind of jack-o'-lantern-y, which of course is something Pilar has seen. But my view of those things is, you know, my motherboard was wired elsewhere, as they say. Sure. Yeah, I think that's actually the first recipe in the book. And it's also just such a beautiful image, like this whole, whole melon just filled with, um, with wine and some straws. That's a great transition to talk a little bit about Chilean cuisine more broadly. So you do, as you as you know, Eileen, the head notes for the recipes, the essays that sort of precede each chapter, and the book is divided seasonally, give a lot of that historical context. So for folks who may not be as familiar with Chilean cuisine, can you talk a little bit, either of you, about what some of the highlights are of the cuisine, what you might want people to take away from the book? And particularly, I think what's interesting is you note in the intro that it's, that Chilean food has been in a huge state of flux in recent decades, and particularly post-dictatorship, like what, what that meant for the proliferation of restaurants and food culture. So can you paint a picture of, of that for us? The Chilean food that we present and we bring on the book is the food we eat at home. And that's what I wanted, because... If you travel to Chile and many people maybe have gone on vacation or for work, it's very difficult to find this food. It's actually, especially in Santiago, in the capital that where most people go. When you travel around the country, maybe it's a little bit more easier, but this is our food. And in my opinion, it's the, the most soulful and it have our true flavors of uh, how we see and how we respect the vegetables and fruits because it's very devoted to the season. So for us, it was always like this. It needs to be a book that is divided by seasons because the rhythm and how the flavors change even in in one same dish. And we noticed that in, in some of the essays, like if you're doing this in summer, you will put these vegetables but if you're doing it in winter you will all you will do it the same dish but with winter vegetables and this will be the choices so I, I i thought about for me this is really like opening my home yeah it's it's home cooked food and and that's the focus of the book but of course chile is a, a huge country and you note that while it's not particularly a wide country it is 2600 miles of coastline right so there's so much variance in the cooking of the whole country was that a question you sort of asked yourself as you were putting this book together like how do we sort of decide what food we're putting in here or was it easy for you because it is sort of the food that you're used to cooking at home so there is two considerations. One is that uh, is where I grew up, and other is that the like more than two thirds of our population lives in that region of the country. So sure. up north and down south, they're more sparsely populated. So if you travel to Chile, this is uh, something that you're going to be more exposed than. And and we try to 
highlight some of the ditches that are very like common in the north and in the south. And I'm very lucky that I have a huge community with my blog. So I will consult with them and I will, I will make like surveys, like how do you do this ditch at home? And people will chime in. And, and so to try to really get, even if I didn't grow up in that part of the country, I, I did try to get people from that part of the country to advise me on, oh, this is the way it needs to look. And sure. another another consideration is that we we also had to look at the fact that we were making this cookbook for people who live in the United States. And we know a lot about how people eat in the United States and what things are available in the U.S. That was a big issue because some of the vegetables are different. And Pilar obviously had to change the recipe so that they would come out properly, given that, like, for example, the squash there is much more fibrous, I guess, like much like not as creamy as the squash that we get here. But also, like, there's some foods that that here are considered basic, like, for example, the bottom of the artichoke, that's like a thing that you can buy at the at the market, or you can buy it canned or frozen. In the US, that's like not that's kind of a more of a, a gourmet, or it's not going to be available to everyone who has a smaller supermarket who doesn't live in a major metropolitan city. And we changed, I mean, we selected things on the basis of also what would be what would seem appealing, considering that it's a stretch for people, but it's not so far that it becomes difficult or obscure or or confusing so we had to look at that too yeah. and we had to cut sure. out a lot of recipes that pilar wanted to be in the book because 75 recipes is not you think it's a lot but it's when you know as much as pilar does about cooking it's really not that much <laughs> right yeah i imagine we'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with pilar hernandez and eileen smith don't go anywhere Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of The Chilean Kitchen, and you can also find two recipes from the book, the beef empanadas and the avocado and celery salad. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks, from Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guests, Pilar Hernandez and Eileen Smith. Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club. Cook along with one of our featured authors each month and then join us for a virtual dinner party with that author. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Pilar Hernandez and Eileen Smith, authors of The Chilean Kitchen. Can we talk about empanadas because they grace the cover of the book? And I loved learning as I was reading the book that they're they're sort of so integral to Chilean cuisine that it's often part of the phrase you're asked first, right? Like, do you like Chilean food? Do you like empanadas? Is sort of like a, a question, a two-part question, singular question in a sense. Um, <laughs> can you talk about those? And I also loved hearing that they traditionally were sort of baked in a community oven and that folks would fold or crinkle them in a particular way to sort of denote which empanadas were yours. So the first question about um, that question is something that is posed to foreigners. So probably Pilar has never fielded that question, but that is something that would sure. be asked of a foreigner. It's one of like the five or seven basic questions you might be asked by a person who has never met you before and is just sort of generally trying to feel you out of what kind of a person you are. So you better like him. Sure. Yeah, the answer is always yes, right? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And can you talk, um, Pilar, maybe about the, the historical importance of empanadas in the cuisine? Yeah, so the, the the communal oven is something that when I was growing up, it, it was on the past already. It's, it's really like, I will say, 60 or 80 years ago or uh-huh. even more. But it was something that the carries on in the way that my grandmother taught me how to fold empanadas in so many different ways. So instead of doing it to, you know, figure out who owned the empanada, <laughs> uh, we did it because we did different feelings for the whatever we were making. Sure. So, but it's absolutely something that it have carry on 
Uh, and you can see it in other countries because empanadas are really in all Latin America and they, there is so many faults and, and every country have their own meaning for the faults and people will have discussions about which fault is better for fry and which one is better for the oven and stuff like that. Or, or even if it tastes better, if you fold it in fours or three or thirds, <laughs> it and goes very, and on and like on. A- there's a very strict orthodoxy about how it should be eaten. So like there's not that there's ways that you can eat an empanada. You can break off the top. That's, that's acceptable. Um, Mm -hmm. And then people will criticize you if you prefer to eat it with a fork and knife, because that's like, you're trying to achieve, you're trying to get to a a certain like level because it's considered déclassé to eat with your hands, but everyone eats empanadas with their hands. But there's a scene in the movie which in Spanish is called Los 33, so I don't know what it was called in English, the one about the minor rescue where someone eats, bites into an empanada from the middle. And I was like scandalized. I asked everyone I knew if this was an acceptable way to eat an empanada because I'd never seen it. And the answer was right. perhaps if you are three or four years old. <laughs> yeah, it's like biting into the middle of a burrito. Like that's just, that's not how it's done. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah, totally. But it's so. But that cultural things are so rich because the first time my mom came to visit and we took her to eat tacos and she didn't know how to grab a taco. Right. And I was like, oh my God. And I didn't even remember that at some point I also didn't know how to grab a taco because we don't have tortillas in Chile. So it is it is far you know is I, I think we Chileans have a little fun giving an empanada to uh, someone from uh, out of Chile and like looking okay how he's gonna approach this <laughs> right right I also um love that Chileans have such an appreciation for sandwiches and, and eat a lot of bread and there's also a recipe of course there's empanada recipes in the book there's also a Chilean hot dog recipe in the book I feel like it prompted for me this like age-old question of is a hot dog a sandwich and then I started wondering is an empanada a sandwich like how do we define a sandwich and can you talk about the the national love of sandwiches so it's really like there is uh, in Chile there is a thing like the maestro sanguchero who is a person, it can be a man or a woman, but it's just devoted. And that's what they do. It's like you you don't do anything else like in the kitchen. You are just doing sandwich. And there is not a bad moment of the day for a sandwich for a Chilean person. Sure. <laughs> but I, I do want to point out that a sandwich, there is there exists. And this, I think, makes a completo, which is what we call the hot dog with the appropriate toppings. This makes a completo not a sandwich which is that a Chilean sandwich, generally speaking, you're not going to pick it up with your hands. You can, but it would be difficult and messy and it would not end well. Whereas a completo, you can eat with your hands and preferably uh-huh. standing I, I up. Totally seen, I totally seen the completo is a sandwich. <laughs> really? But you can eat it standing yeah. up. But an empanada is not a sandwich, correct? No. No, an empanada is not a sandwich. A completo is a sandwich. I would come. I would accept the completo as a sandwich, but you would never eat a completo <laughs> with a fork and knife. Whereas you would eat a chacarero, one of the sandwiches in the book, that you would eat with a fork and knife. I'm gonna do a survey, and we will see what <laughs> Chileans think about this. <laughs> Wait, about the fork and knife yes. or about the sandwich? Now, from completo being a sandwich, it could be a sandwich. I don't. I, I. I don't have a horse in that race. Empanada, not a sandwich. <laughs> Completo. Yes, if you do a poll, let us know the results. That, that's... I will I will send you a screenshot because they, they get super into this. <laughs> There's yes. going to be opinions. Like when we put the avocado toast because that's something uh, that as Chileans, oh my God, so many times that I came back from school and my grandma will be like, oh, do you want a pan con palta, avocado toast? It's like, uh, or for breakfast, you will have avocado toast. It's like, always ever present it's a snack over yeah. there and and but we also have opinions about what you can put in an avocado toast right sure. no sesame <laughs> seeds that's not happening yeah no and, yeah and my kids they they're they're growing up here but they're also yeah they carry these opinions uh-huh. good good there's a there's a fifth chapter that I want to touch on briefly too because we divide it you divided the book seasonally um, and then there's a fifth chapter and am, am I pronouncing it right is it once yeah la once 
Yes. Okay. Um, which can you describe sort of uh, what that is and what sort of the meal that that entails is and how it fits into Chilean culture? So in in Chile, lunch is uh, we are like you know we were colonized by the Spanish uh, Spaniards, so the siesta was a big thing until fairly recently. Uh-huh. So these people will go home to eat lunch, and lunch is it was the and it still is for many people the main meal of the day. So at night. What what it usually happens in in Chilean homes is that everyone arrives at different times, so La Once revolves about that. That you are always uh, you just you arrive, you wash your hands, and you s- sit down with your family. And this meal is very uh, free form. It can be leftovers if you are very hungry that day, or it can be something small like a cup of tea with a, a, a piece of pound cake and then on the weekends and especially on Sunday you have like a more formal version of launce that it will be with some special sweets like the cushions and cakes that uh, Chilean people like savory food is I will say is very like good for you because it's a lot of veggies and all that but we do appreciate sweet things a lot <laughs> and uh-huh. they're they're highlight in the book uh, for me i couldn't be a book about chilean food if we don't get into sweets and baking and, and lance yeah. is is really it's generally speaking the first meal you'd be likely to be invited as a foreigner anyway it's the first instance in which you'd be invited into someone's home why don't you come over and have onse with me and my whatever, my family, my friends, my friends are coming over to have onse. It's a very low commitment kind of an experience. Well, except for time, because whenever you get together with Chileans, just knock out the rest of your night because you're done for. You're just you're staying for the long haul. Invitations are long <laughs> in a very nice way. But yeah, so it'd be very common to go over to someone's house for on say, but it can be it can be something really simple. Although usually, if you have guests, you probably make it fancier. But so it was definitely the first thing that I ever was invited to for someone's house. And to this day, if I have newish friends, well, now I think people go out to dinner more. But well, now now they don't. But generally now, sure. um, but <laughs> <Right>. but <laughs> yeah, but Lawrence is like that's a and it's it's a very. Um, it's a time of day when you're just expected to unplug and relax and not have a bunch of things to happen afterwards. It's based on the idea of communing together over food. Pilar told me this story about one time, I think she was just running to and fro and she noticed that one of her kids was sitting at the table eating alone. And she was like, that can't be like, we Chileans don't do this. Like you have to make your, even if you're not hungry, just make yourself a cup of tea sit down with the person. Like you can't let people eat alone. And I think that's kind of what Onse is also, that joining together around the food. I mean, all the meals are, yeah. but Onse has more flexibility. Yeah. So we're a show on cookbooks, obviously. I always like to ask if there are particular cookbooks or authors that have been important to you um, as you've become um, cookbook authors yourselves. Okay. I'm going to be honest. Julia Child was a huge influence for me. And not in the way that most people talk about her. For me, it was so I didn't grow up knowing anything about Julia Child. But when I came here to the United States, I didn't know any English. So one of the ways I I was trying to learn, it was watching Food Network. Uh So fairly soon, I, I, I keep hearing about this lady this Julia Child lady. So I bought um, I bought her biography to learn more. So I, I saw that she came out with this dream of having a cookbook and she was fairly old. Like she have already, she, she, it was not in her 20s. It was not her first career. It was about, it, she was in a different country. That So I, I felt a lot of, communion with her struggles and and her life so for me it, it was very very like I, I love what she represents on that sense that you can do something even if you don't you're not trained as a chef like I'm not 
I'm a home cook. So all that was a lot of validation, even, even in a time that I was not even thinking about writing this cookbook because this was 10 years ago or even even more. So my, my kid, my, my youngest is called Julia because of Julia Chat. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. That's so great. Eileen, is there anyone for you who's been particularly influential? I mean, Pilar is really the cook. And I would like to point out that during the whole portion of the cooking process, I was allowed to do very few things. I was allowed to grate <laughs> carrots. One time, I believe I turned on a blender. But um, Pilar runs a very tight ship. And it was really important that the food look a certain way. And so between Pilar and Araceli, like they really had to plan out you know, how something would photograph well. There's a lot of food that can be very beautiful, but at the same time, if it's made not quite in that way, it's not so beautiful. Um, and Chilean food has a lot of stew and stuff like that. And so like the way that things are cut is really important or else um, you could end up with like a really flat kind of a photo. And also I, um, I'm i a terror and I will combine any two things if they sound good to me. And that is horrible for a cookbook writer who has very precise ideas about how food should go. But I believe that Madhar Jaffrey, world vegetarian, is kind of what got me started thinking about both how to modify foods for things that either work better for me or that, you know, are more agreeable to my guests or something like that. And also, she has a little bit of memoir um, in that book. I, I know that there's a couple of things where she talks about, like, walking down the street and picking up fried treats in a little bag. And so I think the idea that it's not just delivering the food, it's explaining a little bit about the time and place in which it could be consumed and how that would make a person feel. And that really harkens back to this whole idea of the when people would arrive with the delicious food, the sopapias pasadas to the office and how excited they were about it. It could see that it was something really like a cultural keystone. That it's not about eating. It's about something else. Yeah. Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought we would play a game today with our, our cards here, which um, I'll just give you an overview. So we have a deck of proteins, which are, as you might guess, proteins. Uh, we have a deck of vegetables, also self-explanatory. Uh, we have a deck of flavor cards. So these are spices, herbs, flavoring elements. And then we have a final deck, which is secret ingredient. So these are sort of wild cards. Some some are like totally obscure and out there, and some are just sort of random. So I thought we'd play a game today where we imagine we're all quarantined in Pilar's kitchen, where we where you had cookbook camp, and we're working on creating some Chilean recipes, putting together a menu. But of course, it's quarantine, right? So we we called and had our groceries delivered. They <laughs> arrive, they they plop down the box of groceries, and it's not what we ordered at all. It's just these ingredients that we're going to draw from the cards. And let's see if we can take this sort of messed up grocery order and use these ingredients to make a Chilean meal. So how does that sound? It sounds great. It but sounds... I'm, one, it's, I'm wondering if you're being strategic to make it really difficult. I'm not being strategic. I'm going to be totally <laughs> random in the cards we draw. Um, and let's play two rounds. And I'm going to give you the option. Do you want to go head to head or do you want to work together? Together. Together. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. And 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 this is so funny because I, I recently did the turkey can and I ordered the food the and they sent me these super small potatoes and they were purple potatoes and I was like, oh um, yeah, no. And those potatoes <laughs> so, are originally from Chile, so they should have been good, but not for Yeah, that. but they don't work for, for turkey can. So wow. I was this is totally how we're living right what now. What color did that turn out? No, I what didn't do it. I did I did something else. <laughs> yeah, that would be awful. Yeah. We change. <laughs> well, we'll see if that's the answer to this game, too, if we can even make it work. Um, okay, so let's start with a protein. Um, okay, we have goat. That's the protein we drew. Okay. Let's pick a vegetable. This is asparagus. Wow, okay. Asparagus. <laughs> um, a flavor. All right, flavor-wise, we have garlic. Mm-hmm. And That's let's see what our secret... Okay, good. Yes. Our secret ingredient, let's shuffle these, is going to be... Okay, th these are Thai bird chilies. But let's Ooh. say maybe like any sort of small spicy chili. Any small small chili pepper. So let's review. So we have goat, asparagus, garlic, and chilies. Okay, we didn't even got to talk about how Chilean food is not spicy at uh -huh. all. It's yeah. very mild. So this is going to be a departure and... So we have asparagus, so I feel like we need to go with the spring 
because uh-huh. that that will be and I think I will just blunt them and so because everything else is leaning kind of heavy and very flavorful. Well, and so I think you know, we borrow a lot that, of flavors from Peru. So could we borrow like a Peruvian because they eat more goat than we do in Chile? No, this is a Chilean cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> but they're right there. I love Peruvian food, but <laughs> the representation. No, no okay, I, I will just. Yeah, no, you know, with the garlic and the and the chiles, I, I will do like a infused oil and the go. I will just stew it for a long time with like we use a lot of bay leaf uh, and. I will stew it with some potatoes okay. to get all the flavor. And and then to serve, I will serve the, the, the gold stew with the potatoes and the crunchy very, uh, asparagus and the oil infused with garlic and the Thai chilies. It's not very Chilean, but... <laughs> yeah, especially the chili, but maybe we just use a tiny yeah. bit of the chili. And so the asparagus you would serve on the side, right? Not It's yeah. not in the stew? Yeah, that's something that in Chile is, 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 is fairly common, that you have a stew, but the salad, like, it, it cannot be any salad. Like, we have a specific salad that they're going to complement what we're eating. And we talk a little about in the book about it, because... A lot of our food is 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 uh, like the turkey can and the stews. They're not they're very soft in the mouth. So yeah. if you don't have a crunchy salad to complement, it get it gets a little boring. So for me, the the asparagus will be filling that purpose. Sure, Eileen, how does that sound? Um, I agree that it doesn't sound super Chilean, but Chileans are very <laughs> okay, resourceful. Yeah. So if we ate goat, that is probably how we would do it. Um, and sure. also, okay. um, over the course of writing the book, we discovered that Pilar's family is staunchly in on the potato camp, that they, uh, that they, they find a reason to put potatoes in a lot of things and it always comes out great. So that's not a criticism, but I wasn't surprised yeah. to hear that. I was thinking rice. And then when you said potatoes, I was like, Pilar, it's potatoes. Of course it's potatoes. <laughs> okay. Let's do one more round. Um, let's see what we get this time. Okay. Steak. I feel like we're off to okay. a good start with this protein. Um, let's get a vegetable in here. Green beans. Oh, Ooh. perfect. <laughs> That's leaning good. Looking good. Flavor. Um, cilantro. Yeah. And secret ingredient. Let's see what happens here. Shuffle these up. Um, okay. Oh, we have vanilla bean paste. <laughs> okay. <Right. We> have... <laughs> so steak, green beans, cilantro, and vanilla bean paste. Now maybe maybe there's a dessert in here too, right? It's a full No. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean maybe there's no. Yeah, probably. So, because until the vanilla that is this is really the surprise ingredient, uh, yeah. we were like very into the chacarero with that ingredients, like mm-hmm. a sandwich. Uh-huh. So, you know, some of the breads, the 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 brioche, the the bread for sandwich can be a little sweet. Maybe we could do something with the vanilla in the bread. I don't know. It could it could work, <laughs> like. Uh, like a brioche, uh, something enriched with egg and, and a, a hint of vanilla. I, I haven't tried it, but maybe it works. And the idea. steak, so uh, steak is really something that is not affordable in Chile. Meat is, is quite expensive. So the most likely uh, a resourceful uh, home cook will slice that, like it will make the take and then slice it and use it as a filling in a sandwich or something like that. So we could do that. The green beans, they need to just be blanched and and, and they, they need to be crunchy. And the cilantro, I will do salsa verde that in the book we do it with uh, parsley, but you can do it with cilantro too. And, and you put onion and you just chop the cilantro very small and onion and you season that with a little bit of lemon, uh, oil, salt, and let it rest so the flavors they mingle. And 
Yeah, I think that that we need. Oh, I'm gonna give the vanilla bean to Eileen. <laughs> oh, great! But before, before you give me the, this vanilla bean paste, I, I wanted to ask you if you were going to. So usually, when string beans are on a sandwich, which is a little unusual, um, not in Chile, usually they're cut. Uh, they're they're julienne or they're cut very, very like kind of a French cut green bean. Would you do that to put them on the sandwich, as we normally yeah. do in Chile? Yeah, we we will cut it French cut, but you know, in in I uh, wouldn't stress about it. <laughs> like okay. if you can, if, because you you do need a machine, so I feel like most people, if you don't you you don't get it French cut from the supermarket, you will need a machine. So it's a little bit more tricky. Don't don't use your mandolin for <laughs> green beans. No, you know I already oh. went to the emergency room once with the mandolin. I'm not allowed to do that again. So I would make. So I would probably make um, leche nevada because that was the dessert that I had actually never had before, before I had it um, when we were making the cookbook. One of the things I really marveled at when we were making the cookbook is how many times you can take the same four or five ingredients and end up with completely different things. And the example that I gave was about the desserts and it was about taking milk and sugar and eggs and vanilla, and whipping them up in different ways. And so Leche Nevada is a beautiful, um, I don't know how you would describe this kind of custard, but not a thick custard, like a beautiful sort of softish custard, creamy uh-huh. custard. And then on top of that, you cook these meringues. Uh, that's where the vanilla would go. And you cook these um, soft meringues that kind of, they puff up and they almost look like they might feel like a marshmallow, but that they don't. They're very cloud soft. And they're, it's a really beautiful like elegant dessert made out of super simple ingredients. And I've never made it, but it came out great when Pilar did it. Awesome. That sounds delicious. I, I think that sounds like a great meal with a nice little dessert. Well, <laughs> thank you both, Pilar, Aline. Thank you for joining us and for putting up with our little game. And we're, it's so fun to have you on Salt and Spine. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for having us. It was great. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. As a reminder, you'll find two recipes from the Chilean kitchen on our site. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.